0: You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at RedeemerFortBend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. Father, now as we would consider your word, we pray that you would be with us, help us to be attentive. Lord, help us to have open hearts and receptive minds and speak to us from your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin this morning by contrasting two leaders from world history. The first was the dictator of the small African nation of Equatorial Guinea from 1968 to 1979. His name was Francisco Macias Nguema. And he was a drug-abusing, murderous psychopath who killed 20% of his population and drove another 70% of his population into exile. Among the remaining 10%, he built a cult of personality. He compelled his churches to worship him. And he even changed his nation's motto to there is no God other than Masias and Guaima, a statement which was shown to be false when he wound up on the wrong end of a firing squad. Now in contrast to this is a second leader, the Lord Protector of England from 1643 to 1651, named Oliver Cromwell. Cromwell, a Puritan, had led the forces of Parliament to victory in the English Civil War, which ended with the execution of King Charles I. But though he had won the war and deposed the king, Cromwell refused to take the throne. Because he believed in a principle that would later be carved on his tomb. That Christ, not man, is king. Quite a contrast between these two men and these two attitudes about power. And between these two attitudes stands our passage today, the fourth chapter of the book of Daniel. And as we look at this chapter, we're going to see the pride of a powerful man. And we're going to see that arrogance often accompanies political leadership and we're gonna learn two critical truths. We're gonna learn that the Lord opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And we're gonna learn that the Lord reigns over history, and he is sovereign over every nation on this earth. Now, today in Daniel chapter four, we're gonna see three points. First, we're gonna see that the Lord graciously warns the sinful person. Second, we're going to see that the Lord unfailingly brings down the proud person. And third, we're going to see that the Lord graciously has mercy upon the humble person. So let's start with the first point, which is that the Lord graciously warns the sinful person. We begin in the book of Daniel, chapter 4, verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar. Now, one of the interesting things about today's chapter is that it has been written by Nebuchadnezzar. And if you've been with us recently, you know that Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon. He was the most powerful man in the world in his day. He was a Gentile. He was a pagan. He was a tyrant. He waged war three times against the Jews. And it was he who destroyed Jerusalem and tore down the temple of the Lord. This is not the person you would expect to wind up writing a chapter of the Hebrew Scriptures. And yet, here we are. And today, we'll see the circumstances that led Nebuchadnezzar to write this chapter. Chapter 4, verse 4, he says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. We're not told exactly when this incident took place, but based on the fact that this is the last chapter in which Nebuchadnezzar appears in this book, this probably took place late during his 43-year reign. By this point, Nebuchadnezzar was an accomplished king. He had won many wars. He had built up his empire, and especially he had built up his capital city. And as we meet Nebuchadnezzar today, he is enjoying pleasant days of leisure, but his ease is startlingly interrupted. Verse 5, he says, I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the images and the visions of my head alarmed me. For the second time in this book, Nebuchadnezzar has a terrifying dream. And as in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar discerns that his dream has symbolic or prophetic content and he wants to know what this dream means and so he summons the wise men of his court. Now we've said before that Nebuchadnezzar was ethnically a Chaldean and a big part of Chaldean culture was the practice of magic and an interest in the occult. And so a large part of Nebuchadnezzar's royal court consisted of various types of sorcerers People that Nebuchadnezzar could expect would be able to interpret his dream. But as in chapter 2, these wise men are unable to interpret his dream. And so the king summons the main character of this book, Daniel. Now Daniel is not simply one of the king's wise men. Daniel is not a sorcerer. He is simply a faithful man who knows the Lord, whom the Lord had allowed to previously interpret one of Nebuchadnezzar's dreams. And as a result, Daniel had received a very large promotion. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 48, we read that the king made Daniel ruler over the whole pra- province of Babylon and the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel had duties over the most important province in the whole empire and he had oversight over Nebuchadnezzar's wise men. But since these wise men couldn't get the job done, Nebuchadnezzar now calls Daniel to set aside his other duties and come interpret his dream. Verse 8, he says, At last Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. Nebuchadnezzar recognizes that Daniel, or Belteshazzar as the Babylonians called him, is different than these other wise men. Daniel has a real connection to an authentically divine supernatural power. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was a pagan. He chalks this up to Daniel having the spirit of the holy gods, plural. He doesn't understand that there's only one God. And that Daniel has been indwelt and empowered by the holy spirit of the living God. But Nebuchadnezzar knows that something is different about Daniel. And friends, this is something that we should know. If we are truly believers, this same Holy Spirit indwells and empowers us today. And if the Holy Spirit's in you, it will be noticeable, even to unbelievers. Unbelievers should look at you and they'll know that you're different. They may not know why, but they'll know that your lifestyles and your actions and your speech are different than other people, other people who don't know the Lord. Because the Holy Spirit, if He's in your life, will change you. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar saw. Daniel's different than the other wise men, even if he can't explain why with accurate theology. But Nebuchadnezzar tells Daniel his dream. Verse 10, he says, The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. Well, so far, so good. But now things take a dark turn in this dream. Verse 13, he says, I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. Let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Now in this dream, Nebuchadnezzar sees a watcher, apparently an angel from heaven. And the angel pronounces doom upon the tree that had been described earlier. It is chopped down, its limbs are hacked off, its fruit scatters as do the creatures who had enjoyed its shade. And this stump is shackled, and some very odd comments are made about the stump. It's to be exposed to the elements, it will no longer have the mind of a man, and it will act like an animal, and it will remain so seven periods of time, and this is said to be a judgment of these angelic beings, so that, the li- so, that, so that living people will learn that God rules over the affairs of humanity and decides who will have authority over people, and that sometimes God gives authority to the most downtrodden and lowly people as a reminder that it is he who decides who rules in this world, and that is the dream. Now Nebuchadnezzar asks Daniel to interpret it. And as in chapter 2, God discloses the meaning of this dream to Daniel. Verse 19, then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. And Belteshazzar answered and said, my lord, may the dream be for those who hate you, and its interpretation for your enemies. Daniel knows what the dream means, but he doesn't want to tell the king, not because he's afraid, but because he genuinely cares for this king. By this point, Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel had worked together closely for decades. Daniel genuinely cares about this unbelieving man's good. But this dream is some bad news. And so Daniel reluctantly tells the king. And he says he wishes this dream were about Nebuchadnezzar's enemies, not Nebuchadnezzar himself. Now Daniel tells the king the significance of the first part of this dream involving the massive tree. Verse 22, he says, It is you, O king! who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth." This dream is about Nebuchadnezzar. He is the tree. His empire has grown powerful and dominant over the world as he knew it. Under his rule, many different people groups prospered and were protected. And his pride has caused his power to try to ascend to heaven, much like the Tower of Babel in ancient times. But what of the end of this dream? the tree falling and the angel pronouncing its doom. Verse 24, Daniel says, This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. God has decreed that Nebuchadnezzar will suffer a shocking degradation. He will lose his mind, he will be driven into the fields, he will live like an animal, and he will remain in this humiliating position for 7 periods of time. And we're not told how long these periods is or each of these periods is, it's usually assumed that they are years. And so Nebuchadnezzar will remain in this degraded condition for years until he acknowledges that the Lord rules over the affairs of men. See, Nebuchadnezzar has a pride problem. As a great king, he thinks he is in control over what happens on the earth. He's about to learn that he isn't. We're going to talk more about that in just a minute. But because of his pride, Nebuchadnezzar has to be humbled through this terrible judgment. And so Daniel says to the king in verse 27, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Daniel doesn't want this terrible thing to happen to Nebuchadnezzar. And so he advises the king to repent of his sins in the hope that if he does, this judgment may be delayed or canceled. All right, what should we see in these many verses we've just summarized? What we see here is that God is acting very graciously towards Nebuchadnezzar. In giving the king this dream, and in giving the king access to a man who can interpret the dream, God is giving Nebuchadnezzar a warning. And friends, when we receive a warning from God, that is a grace from the Lord. Now, in our culture today, we don't usually see warnings like that. We live in a day and age where you're never supposed to correct anybody, where you're never supposed to tell anybody that they're wrong, where you're just supposed to support what somebody else does, no matter how sinful or ludicrous it might be. And if you don't, then you're unloving. But in actuality, it is the failure to warn which is unloving. If I watch you drunkenly stumble towards your car with keys in hand, and I don't intervene, I am not acting in a loving way towards you. I am acting in a wickedly indifferent way towards you. Real love would intervene in that situation, wouldn't it? It would warn. It would act. Real love warns a person in danger of calamity. And God lovingly warns Nebuchadnezzar because he is in a position of calamity because he is ensnared by the sin of pride. He's also guilty of oppressing people according to verse 27. He loves his power and he abuses that power and we saw that last week in chapter three, didn't we? The fiery furnace. And for those sins God could have struck him dead. or God could have just brought this judgment predicted in the dream upon him without giving him any warning. But God instead gives Nebuchadnezzar a chance to avert this disaster and this is an important principle, friends. When God warns us of danger, He does so because He is graciously extending us an offer of mercy. If we persist in sin, we will meet calamity. But if we repent, we will find forgiveness and pardon prophet Jeremiah wrote this, he says, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And that is what Daniel tells the king here. Turn from your sins and perhaps this judgment will not fall upon you. And friends, I've got to tell you the same principles apply to us today. God is still gracious. And in His love and grace, God has spoken a warning to this world because we've all sinned. And we all know it. Romans chapter 2, Paul says all of us know God's righteous standard. The law has been written on our hearts. We know the gist of right and wrong, and yet we all do evil. Romans 1 says we suppress the truth. We ignore what we know so that we can revel in sin. But God continues to warn us. Romans 1 says if we look at nature, we can see God's invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, so that we are without excuse. Nature tells us that God exists and that He is good and that He is just. And so we can infer that our wrongdoing will be avenged. Moreover, God has warned humanity by sending His Son. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 48, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus warned about hell more than anybody else in the Bible. Moreover, God has warned humanity in His Word, the Bible. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, Romans tells us. Revelation 20 says if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he will be cast into the lake of fire. Christian friends, God has warned us about the dangers of sin. He does so even now as we sit in church and we hear His Word preached. God warns us of the dangers of sin every time we hear the gospel proclaimed. Which reminds us that Christ bore our sin in his body on the tree. Which should remind us that there is a penalty if we do not turn to Christ. God warns us of the dangers of sin every time we receive counsel about our lives from a Christian friend. God has graciously warned us, friends, just like he warned Nebuchadnezzar. Because God is kind and God is gracious. God says today what he said to ancient Israel in Ezekiel 33. As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back, for why will you die? God has warned us. And through the death and resurrection of Christ, God has made a way of deliverance for us. Have you heeded these warnings? Or have you hardened your heart towards them? Have you repentantly trusted Christ? Or are you ignoring the Lord? Be warned, friends, God means everything that he has said. And we must heed his warnings because God will make good on them. And that's what the next verse tells us, verse 28. It says, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. God did everything that he warned Nebuchadnezzar he would do. We'll see that in just a minute. But God is not playing games. God means what he has said, and he will make good on every threat in the Bible upon those who do not heed his warnings and take refuge in his son. God graciously warns the sinner. And we had best pay attention. But Nebuchadnezzar didn't. And that's what we see now in our second point, which is that the Lord unfailingly brings down the proud person. Verse 29 says, At the end of 12 months, Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. A year has passed since Nebuchadnezzar has received this warning. And one of the perils of our human condition is that the passage of time often makes it seem like our past disappears. What seemed terrifying to Nebuchadnezzar a year ago now seems like the wisp of a distant memory. The passage of time has caused him to forget, but the passage of time does not cause God to forget. And we need to know that, friends. We may not remember the sins of our past, but unless we have given them to Christ, we still bear them. And we will still give an account for them, no matter how distant or forgotten they may be. In the same way, we are accountable for every warning that God has given to us, even if we no longer remember them. You're accountable for every sermon you've ever heard. I hope you've paid attention to some of them. And here, Nebuchadnezzar does not remember God's warning. And so he is again at ease. He is strolling atop his palace roof, surveying the grandeur of his capital city. And he looks out at this city and he says, verse 30, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built, by my mighty power as a royal residence, and for the glory of my majesty. Nebuchadnezzar was not the first king of Babylon. Babylon was an ancient and famous city from the time of the Tower of Babel. But Nebuchadnezzar has done a lot to improve Babylon and its place in the world. He has made Babylon great again, if you will. And because of his military victories, Babylon sits as the capital of the world. From his palace rooftop, Nebuchadnezzar would have seen two other palaces which he had built in the city, one of which housed the hanging gardens of Babylon, one of the ancient wonders of the world. He would have also seen 53 temples, which he had either built or beautified, and many roadways which he had constructed, including the grand processional avenue, guarded by dozens of statues leading up to a ziggurat, a pyramid-like tower, like the Tower of Babel. He would have seen the impressive defenses he had built for his city, a vast moat, a defensive wall 21 feet thick, punctuated by guard towers every 60 feet, which was surrounded by another wall, 11 feet thick, surrounded by another wall, 25 feet thick, and another wall, 23 feet thick. Nebuchadnezzar would have seen some of the grand gates in these walls, like the famous Ishtar Gate. As Nebuchadnezzar looked at Babylon, he would have seen many wonders. And he sits back and he thinks, Wow, look at all that I have accomplished. Have you ever built something? accomplish something that you were just so proud of. It's an easy thing to do. I often find myself like Nebuchadnezzar anytime I finish a big project, like when I finish my master's thesis, or even if I manage to keep my office clean for a week. I sit back and I think, wow, Ben, you've just done so well. That's the same sentiment Nebuchadnezzar had when he looked at his city. And it's the same sentiment which God found sinful and judged him for. Verse 31, while the words were still in the king's mouth, He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. In an instant, Nebuchadnezzar, the greatest of kings, the man so glorious that he was depicted as the head of gold in the prophetic dream, showing the course of human history in chapter 2, he loses it all. He loses his mind. This man who had once driven captives away from their homeland is now driven away from his home. This man who had compelled his captives to wander naked, exposed to the elements, now wanders in the same way, like a beast covered in the morning dew. Unlike his captives, who now lived as farmers, Nebuchadnezzar would live off the land as an animal, eating grass. And he began to resemble an animal by his lack of hygiene and his wild appearance. Nebuchadnezzar the Great brought to degradation, and there he remained for a long time, probably seven years. Now you should know there are ancient records that record Nebuchadnezzar late in his reign acting erratically like a madman. This really happened. So what should we take from this experience? There's a famous saying that most of us have heard, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Power breeds corruption, which in turn seeks more power. And success breeds pride, which then craves more success. Well, What is pride? Pride is when we forget our place, when we forget who we really are, wretched sinners. When we forget how desperately we need the Lord for salvation or really for any good thing in our lives. When we forget that all that we have is an undeserved grace from God's hand. Pride is when we unduly exalt ourselves and we begin to imagine that we are the cause of our own blessings. And it's easy to become proud, to forget the Lord and to exalt ourselves when we enjoy success and power. That's why the Lord warned Israel they would be in a place of most danger once they had successfully conquered the promised land. In Deuteronomy 8, God says, take care, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them. And when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiplies and when all that you have multiplies, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God. For it is He who gives you power to get wealth. See, success feeds our flesh. 1 John 2 tells us that The world system directs us to pursue the pride of life, which makes us feel important. And as we indulge in fleshly pride, we become blind to our faults and our sins. In the book of Revelation, the Lord Jesus rebukes the affluent church of Laodicea. He says, you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Prosperity causes us to ignore our sins because we assume that our success is evidence that God is pleased with us. Success closes our ears to correction. We begin to interpret our faults as virtues, and we think that because we have much, therefore we must be righteous. In the same way success makes us idolize ourselves, because we rob God of the praise which he is due for his kindness to us. James chapter one says that every good gift comes down from the Father of lights. God stands behind every good thing that we experience. But instead of thanking God, we are prone to celebrate ourselves for the blessings which we imagine we have generated by our own excellence. We attribute our success to our own intelligence, our own ability, our own work ethic, and we forget that all of that comes from God. You know what else comes from God? Opportunity. We forget there are lots of other people who are just as smart or skilled or have good work ethic like we have who didn't get the opportunities that we got. And for his own good reasons, God opened the door for us, and he didn't open the door for others. But instead of realizing that and being grateful, we arrogantly applaud ourselves, and we look down on others who haven't prospered as we have. That's what Nebuchadnezzar's doing, which brings God's judgment. He reflects on his accomplishments, which ultimately come from God, and instead, he congratulates himself. And he fails to give God the glory. Now, this is not Nebuchadnezzar's only expression of pride. We've talked about the arrogance of Babylon and this man for weeks. In Isaiah 47, God reveals what is at the heart of the empire of Babylon, that they say in their heart, I am and there is no one besides me. Only God can say that. But Babylon thinks it's so mighty it has become God. In fact, I would remind you that the famous words of Isaiah 14, which are often interpreted as referring to the fall of Satan, are actually found in a prophecy about the king of Babylon, likely Nebuchadnezzar. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. What arrogance. The king of Babylon wants to be like God. And you know what else? You and I do too. This was the temptation that deceived Eve, right? You'll be like God. This is the temptation that stands behind all other temptations. That we should decide what's best for us, not God. That we should do what we want, when we want. We all want to be God. But this temptation to play God is especially strong among people with power. Employers, the rich doctors, lawyers, and especially politicians. This is true as far back as ancient Egypt. The pharaohs claimed to be gods on earth, and so did the Roman emperors. So does the Kim dynasty today. But even short of claiming to be God, human leaders are infamous for their arrogance. At his coronation, Napoleon seized the crown from the pope and crowned himself, and his message was clear. God didn't make me emperor, I did. And we see this same sort of human exulting arrogance in our own politics today. I first noticed this in 2012. I had just been studying this passage and I watched one of the presidential primary debates. And I remember one of the candidates was talking about the success that America enjoyed. And he attributed that success to the genius of the men who founded our country, and our system of economics, and our powerful military, and our wonderful people, and he went on and on and on, but he never acknowledged God. And it struck me this was exactly what I had just been reading about. And yes, in one sense our country has done well because of our system of government and our economics and our military, but at the end of the day all of that has happened only because of God's kind provision, right? We have not blessed ourselves. God has blessed us. And to not acknowledge that is sin. And after I first noticed this I started watching our politicians and I've got to tell you friends what I've seen is that in the holes of power arrogance abounds. We might not wanna talk about the arrogance of our politicians, but I think this passage compels us to. There are many examples that I could cite. For the sake of time, let me focus simply on quotes from our two most recent presidents. The rhetoric that surrounded the presidency of Barack Obama was often arrogant and blasphemous. Studies are still being published on what is called the messianic rhetoric of his speeches. He would often remark, as he did in one speech in July 2008, that his ascent to power was, quote, the moment that the world is waiting for, as though he was a summative figure in world history, and that his rise to power was some sort of ultimate historical event. And many of his followers agreed. At a campaign rally, Oprah Winfrey declared herself to have been drawn to Obama by, quote, amazing grace. And she proclaimed him to be, quote, the chosen one. Friends, it's blasphemy to talk about yourself like that. It's blasphemy to accept that kind of reverence from people. President Obama did it, but he's not alone. Let me read you a quote that comes from President Donald Trump's Twitter page on August 21st, 2019. In it, he thanks talk radio host Wayne Allen Root for his quote, very nice words. And then the President relates what those words were. Quote, President Trump is the greatest president for Jews and for Israel in the history of this world. And the Jewish people in Israel love him like he's the king of Israel. They love him like he is the second coming of God." End quote. Those words aren't very nice. Those are not words to bask in. Those are words to renounce. Because only Jesus is the king of Israel. Only Jesus is the second coming of God. And it is blasphemous to bask in titles that only belong to the Lord. Friends, perhaps we're used to arrogance and sin in our politicians. Maybe we ignore it because we like our politicians. In fact, in this country, I think we're just, we just smile on arrogance generally. We regard it as a small, insignificant fault. But arrogance isn't trivial. It isn't cute. It certainly isn't something that the people of God should approve of. Because when we approve of the sins of others, we commit sin ourselves. Friends, we need to know that Jesus said in Luke 14, 11, Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And to make sure we don't miss this point, God's Word contains a terrifying example that shows this to us. Remember Acts chapter 12? On an appointed day Herod Agrippa put on his royal robes and took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to the people. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not a man! Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Here's a powerful man who accepts praise from people which equate him with God. And instead of pointing this crowd to the Lord, he basks in the praise. And he goes from being worshipped to being worm food in 0.1 seconds. Pride is not a small fault. It is a sin that God despises and that he will punish. Proverbs 8.13 says, Pride and arrogance and perverted speech, I hate. Proverbs 16.5 says, Everyone... Who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. And friends, that's true whether you're a politician or a powerful person or you're just an ordinary person who's vain, who boasts in our looks or our intellect, our athleticism, our bank account, our connections, our family history, our business success or our reputation. Friends, every proud person will be humbled, including me and you either in this life or in the next, because God brooks no rival. God demands that he alone be revered as ultimate. And we've got to remember, friends, that we are just people, sinful people who are desperately in need of God's grace. And I want to say this to you today. Maybe you are proud and you think, I've got it so made that my position is unassailable. I've escaped God's oversight. I can do what I want. He warned, nobody's that safe. The prophet Obadiah wrote these words to some arrogant folks. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Friends, the Lord unfailingly brings down the proud. Sometimes it happens instantly. Look how instantly our nation's economy collapsed twice now in the last 12 years. Friends, God can get to you if he wants to, just as he brought down Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar walked out of that palace, leaving his throne room and his dinner table behind, and he walked out to wander the pasture and chow down on some shrubbery because God makes good on his warnings against the proud. And maybe you don't believe that. You say, well, you know, I've heard these warnings for a long time and I've gotten away with it. Or maybe you say, well, I've seen the proud prosper and they never get checked. Maybe like Nebuchadnezzar on the palace roof, God's warnings against sin and pride seem distant and unreal to you. But beware... Though time may pass and judgment has not yet fallen, that doesn't mean that God's justice is non-real or that he has exempted you from it. Second Peter 3 says the Lord is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Friends, don't misinterpret the Lord's patience as approval for you to continue in sin. He gave Nebuchadnezzar a year to repent, and he's giving you time too. But if you don't, one day the Lord's patience will run out, and he will do all that he has warned Friends, I also want you to remember that whatever we boast in, in this life, will not endure because it is connected to this world, and the things of this world are passing away. And while we're here, you know, that which we clutch the most tightly, it always has a tendency to disappear, doesn't it? So be warned, we are not God. Our word and our will are not ultimate. Only God reigns. Whatever we have is from His hand, and only He deserves the glory for the good things that we experience. And if we refuse to give him that glory, he will humble us. It is a law of nature. And let me tell you, I've experienced the humbling of God in my life, and it is not a pleasant thing to endure. But there's good news, which is that while God opposes the proud, he gives grace to the humble, and that's what we see in our third point today. The Lord graciously has mercy on the humble person. Verse 34, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. Nebuchadnezzar lived as an animal for a long time, but eventually God allowed him to be aware of his position, to recognize that he was just a creature, but that God reigns. And when Nebuchadnezzar realized this, the Lord mercifully restored his mind. But Nebuchadnezzar does not just immediately return to business as usual. He performs another act of humility. He praises God. Verse 34, he says, I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Here's what Nebuchadnezzar learns, the difference between God and man. God lives forever, we don't. God's dominion and rule are everlasting, human glory is fleeting. You know, Christ is still going to be on the throne a trillion years after there's no more Republicans and Democrats. because we saw in chapter 2, the kingdom of God is coming to this earth and it will be succeeded by no kingdom because the Lord will reign forever and ever. And compared to him, all of us are like nothing. Now that doesn't mean that we don't matter to God. We do. That's why Christ died for us. But our power and glory is infinitesimal compared to the might and the glory of God. Think about all that is most highly regarded in this world. Nuclear weapons, trillions of dollars, worldwide media influence. Then listen to Isaiah forty fifteen. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. They're accounted as dust on the scales. That's all human grandeur is. It's a speck of dust co- compared to the omnipotent power of Jesus. God's will shall be done. God's purposes shall be fulfilled in every nation, in all the world, and no one can stop His plans. And friends, the Lord is unaccountable to man, but we are accountable to the Lord. And Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges this, and he praises God, and God restores him to the throne, verse 36. At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Nebuchadnezzar comes back to his throne, and he becomes an even greater king. And for at least a season, he doesn't return to his pride. Verse 37, he says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the kingdom of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. He honors the Lord, and he recognizes that he has been humbled by this God. And as a further expression of humility, Nebuchadnezzar writes this chapter. We see that back in the first three verses of the chapter. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Nebuchadnezzar wrote all of this as a letter or a decree to send to his whole empire to say, here's the truth friends, I'm not in charge but the Lord is. Now many people have read these words and concluded that here Nebuchadnezzar was saved. I'm not sure that we should draw that conclusion because this isn't the first time we've seen Nebuchadnezzar praise God. At the end of chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar honored the Lord as the God of gods and the Lord of kings, a revealer of mysteries. Yet by chapter 3, he'd built an idol and compelled people to worship it. At the end of chapter 3, he praised the Lord because there is no other God who is able to rescue as the Lord had rescued Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Yet the uniqueness of this God has not changed Nebuchadnezzar's heart by the beginning of chapter 4. And here Nebuchadnezzar says some true things about God. But there's a far cry between knowing truth about God and submitting yourself and entrusting yourself to the Lord. The book of James makes this point when it says, You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Knowing about God is different than personal faith. And history teaches us that Nebuchadnezzar led Babylon, he never led Babylon into the worship of Yahweh. He remained a pagan until his death. So I would not say that he was saved, but I would say this God was merciful to Nebuchadnezzar when he humbled himself. We have said that pride is forgetting who we really are and believing that we are the source of our own blessings. Humility is the opposite of that. Humility is acknowledging who we really are our sin, our unworthiness, our limits, that we're just dust. And recognizing our total need and dependence on the Lord, who is our sovereign. Humility is seeing ourselves as we truly are. As the Bible describes us, Romans 12 says, Everyone among you ought not think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. An honest, biblical look at ourselves will make us humble. And friends, we must be humble, for without humility you cannot be saved. It is an act of humility to come to Christ. It is an act of humility to acknowledge your sin. It is an act of humility to acknowledge that you deserve God's wrath, to confess that you cannot save yourself, and to cast yourself on the mercy of Christ. That is humility, and that is the only path of salvation. But let's say that we've come to Christ. Do we not still struggle with pride? How do we maintain humility then? Well, let me encourage us to consider three things that Nebuchadnezzar does here, which we can do in our own lives. First, Nebuchadnezzar looked to heaven. We must look to heaven and its Lord too. We must be people of prayer. Prayer practiced rightly is an act of humility. Consider the model prayer of Matthew 6. Over half the prayer is about glorifying God. Let your name be reverenced as holy. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's about God's glory. That's humility. What else does the prayer show? We declare dependence on God. Please, Lord, give me my daily bread. Meet my needs. I need you, Lord, to give me that. I'm dependent on you. Give me protection from the evil one. We're dependent on the Lord. A confession of that is humility. And finally, confessing our sins, acknowledging our wrong. That is humility. Our prayers often don't look like the model prayer, but they should. This is how the Bible urges us to pray, and praying in this way is humble. Second, Nebuchadnezzar praised the Lord. And When he got his mind back, he said, thank you to God. You know, so often we're ungrateful, right? Remember when Jesus healed 10 lepers? Only one came back to say thank you. How often do we pray and pray for something and God grants it to us and then we never say thank you? Friends, thankfulness is an act of humility because it reminds us that what we have doesn't come from us, it comes from our Father in heaven. Third, Nebuchadnezzar publicly honored God. He does not bask in the adoration of others as Herod had done, he points others to the Lord. That's humility, because it stops other people from unduly reverencing us, and it gets them worshiping the one who deserves it. This is the sort of humility that John the Baptist had when he said, he must increase, but I must decrease. And isn't that what we want for the people around us? Not to see us as glorious, but to see Jesus as glorious. Friends, we need to reject pride, we need to be humble. For only through humility comes the true exaltation that lasts forever. 1 Peter 5, 6 says, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Humility now leads to the only exaltation that lasts, which is the exaltation that comes when God says, Well done, good and faithful servant. So be humble by praying humbly, by giving thanks to God, and by honoring him publicly. All right, let me conclude like this. We've seen that the Lord graciously warns the sinful person. We've seen that the Lord unfailingly brings down the proud person. And the Lord graciously has mercy on the humble person. But the last thing I want to say to you today is this. I know the election is coming, and it is dominating a lot of our thinking and our energy. But remember why God allowed Nebuchadnezzar to endure this humiliation. Not just for his good, but chapter 4, verse 17 says that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Friends, that is what you need to know about the upcoming election. No matter who wins the debate this week, no matter whether there are mail-in ballots or not, no matter whether a new justice is confirmed or not, no matter whether a COVID vaccine is announced or not, no matter what happens in the news, whatever takes place in November is what the Lord has ordained. The Lord is sovereign over this world. The Lord is sovereign over this nation. He has a plan and he is bringing it to pass and he will put over this country whomever he will. Romans 13 says there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Friends the Lord is in control and he is working all things out for our good. Now that doesn't mean we're gonna like what happens in November but it does mean that this is part of his plan which is drawing all things to a close, which will terminate in the endless reign of Christ and endless bliss for his people. So don't be anxious about what's going to happen because it's in God's hands. And no one can thwart what's in God's plan. Nebuchadnezzar said that in this chapter. Instead of being anxious, have faith and pray. Philippians 4 says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So pray. Pray for our nation. Pray for our candidates, especially for them to walk in humility and to come to Christ and to follow God's wisdom. That would be good for them and for our country. Pray for God's will to be done. Pray for God to give us the faith that we need to live in these times and then rest knowing that the Lord is in control, and He does as He will, and we can trust Him. And about everything else, be humble. for Proverbs 29 says, One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor.